A reading from the letter to the Hebrews. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal, For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. The Word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good to see you and invite you to turn to Hebrews 12 in your Bibles or bulletins as we continue our series, uh, Walking by Faith. Well, During the 1996 Summer Olympics in Atlanta, Georgia, the U.S. Uh, women's gymnastics team was on the verge of an upset. The Russians were highly favored to win the women's gymnastics, and the Americans were ahead with one exercise to go, and that was the vault exercise. All the Americans needed was one strong finish from one of their gymnasts on the vault exercise, and they would take home the gold medal. The first gymnast went, And uh, as she approached the vault, she vaulted herself up in the air, did twists and turns and landed and stumbled. Did that twice. The second gymnast, same thing. Failed to stick the landing, stumbled. The third one stumbled. The fourth one stumbled. The fifth gymnast, highly talented and celebrated gymnast, ran, vaulted herself up in the air, landed, and then fell entirely, twice. With each successive failure, the pressure on the shoulders of Carrie Strug 
got heavier and heavier. Carrie Strug was an 18-year-old from Tucson, Arizona. And she would get two tries at the vault to salvage the gold medal for the U.S. Olympic team. On her first try, Carrie vaulted herself high up in the air, twisted and turned beautifully, landed, and you can watch in the video, her ankle gives way just so, and she falls. Not only that, but she injures her ankle in the process. She stands up and she limps. She limps over to the sidelines where she finds her coach and she says, do you need me to go? Do, like, do I have to do this? Do we need this? And he says, Harry, we need you to go one more time. We need you to go one more time for the gold. So Carrie, surprisingly, limps over to the starting place. And she straightens her feet and she focuses her eyes. And she begins to run. And she performs one of the most risky, one of the most dangerous, one of the most beautiful vault exercises available to gymnasts. She, uh, she goes high into the air. She twists. She turns. She lands with determination. You can see the pain pulsating through her body. She salutes the judges on one leg. And then she collapses in absolute agony. Carrie Strug needed a 9.7 to secure the gold medal. She looks up at the scoreboard, 9.712. Carrie Strug's finest moment came when she was in great pain. When she was nursing an injury and most wanted to quit, that was the exact moment when Carrie's team and Carrie's nation looked to her the most and needed her the most. And her most painful moment became her finest moment. My friends, the most difficult time for you and I to walk by faith is when we are in great pain. Maybe like Carrie, you have a bodily pain. You have an injury. You have a chronic pain somewhere in your body. You have a a scary medical diagnosis. You're undergoing treatments. And it's hard to pray, isn't it? When you're in bodily pain, isn't it? Hard to pray, hard to trust God. We start to curve in on our pain, curve in on ourselves. You may have relational pain from loneliness to rejection. And the last thing you want to do is to identify yourself as a Christian and and make it even harder to build relationships. The pain that you might be feeling right now is one of the worst pains there is, and that is the pain of feeling like you failed. You feel ashamed. Maybe you've suffered some kind of setback in your career, some kind of setback in your schooling. And um, trusting God with more risk, which is so much of the part of walking by faith, seems unacceptable to you after you've gotten burned. It's like we're limping to the sidelines and we're looking to our coach, Jesus Christ, and we're like, do we have to, like, do you really need me right now? Couldn't I sit this one out? And through the author of Hebrews through this word of God, which Jesus Christ so clearly speaks through, Jesus Christ says, we need you. This is your moment. This is the time when you are in greatest pain. Actually, this is your finest moment. It's time, the author of Hebrews will tell us, to stop walking by faith and to start running by faith. Ironically, great courage. It will take great determination. 
And as we look to Hebrews 12, we find that we have in Jesus Christ the best example there is for running by faith when we are in great pain. It's all about who we fix our eyes on when we're in pain. It makes all of the difference. And Hebrews 12 verses 1 and 2 is going to give us the gold standard example for us to look to while we are in pain. Verse 1, the author of Hebrews says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, the author of Hebrews pictures Jesus here as a runner in a great race. He is the, quote, founder and perfecter of our faith. You know, you could translate this, that Jesus is the forerunner and champion of our faith. Forerunners in the ancient Olympic foot races were those who broke away from the pack and set their own pace. And maybe you've seen this in foot races in our day or in bicycle races that there's a breakaway group. There's someone who's able to get away from the pack and run at their own pace and set a different pace. Jesus was the forerunner who triumphed where every other person in the history of mankind failed. He didn't give in to temptation. He didn't despair. When he was mocked, he responded in love. When he was crushed and when he was isolated, he didn't crack. He was faithful to his call. He was faithful to the end to what his father asked him to do. Now, I want to draw our attention to one particular way that Jesus triumphed in his race. Verse 2 says this, he endured the cross, despising the shame. And then in verse 3, Jesus endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Notice those two words, shame and hostility. Jesus endured those two things. Shame and hostility are power tools. They're used to control people. And we see it even in our day. If you want to control someone's behavior, you publicly shame them. And you make them the object of interpersonal hostility. It's an extremely powerful and effective weapon. And, and you know this. If you've ever been publicly humiliated, you know how scaldy of an experience this can be. Shaming and hostility are their weapons, and they, they attempt to control us, but also they drive us to despair if we endure them long enough. Now, the, ran, uh, the race that Jesus ran included extreme physical cruelty, but that physical cruelty was, a, was only a means to an end. They're trying to break his soul and break the, break the spirit of his disciples. They made him the object of, of hostility in the form of jeers and taunts and violence and the indignity of being killed and buried like a common criminal. The, the son of God, the king of heaven, was denigrated as much as you can denigrate a human being in the Roman Empire at the turn of history. And Jesus endured all that, which was an amazing feat. The author of Hebrews is identifying this was incredible. This was when Jesus was in, uh, it was in pain. That was actually his finest moment. And why was it 
his finest moment because instead of being dissuaded, he was seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That he went from the most denigrated, lowest pit in, in this earth, and he was raised up. Not only was his body resurrected, but he was brought up to the Father's right hand to rule over all of heaven and earth. He triumphed over all of those jeers. He triumphed over all of the mocking. He triumphed over all of the shame. And not only did he do that, my friends, not only did he do that, he took with him anyone who's ever been enslaved who's looked to him, anyone who's ever been abused who's looked to him, anyone who's ever been shamed or mocked or, um, or put down, anyone who's ever been dehumanized, who's ever looked to Jesus, he took them by the hand and he led them out of the depths of that shame and he brought them and he intercedes for them today as their great high priest who stands at the Father's right hand on their behalf and on our behalf. What an amazing triumph this was, that Jesus Christ triumphed over all of the shame, degradation, abuse, and he stands over it and, and he took people with him. What an inspiring example. Wouldn't you like to keep up with him in that race, my friends? Wouldn't you like to triumph over any dehumanizing force in this world? Any, anybody who's ever, uh, who, who's ever committed acts of injustice against you or against those that you love, wouldn't you love to follow Jesus in his path of death and resurrection and see the Lord work justice and make all things new? Now, what keeps us from doing that? What keeps us from following the example of Jesus? Why do we quit? Why do we stop? Verse 1 says this, it's the sin which clings so closely. The sin clings so closely. The injustice that we want to fight out there is in here. There's sin and there's weight that clings so closely. Have you ever noticed that when you're walking with a backpack, the longer that you walk, the more irritated your shoulders get? starts to dig in a little bit. Have you ever noticed that, um, you, you know, at some point you have to like, man, like if I'm going to keep walking, I'm going to have to find a way to walk without this bag. Or maybe you've run in a race before and you've had layers because you started out cold, but then you start to heat up and you realize, man, these layers are like actually doing more harm than good. They're kind of getting scratchy. They're kind of getting hot and you have to shed some layers. So it is in the race of the Christian life. Pain. The pain of the race is going to reveal the sin that we're carrying with us, the sin that's clinging too closely and, 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 and weighing us down. Here's some examples of that. Along the race of following Jesus, someone insults us, and that insult reveals our willingness to lash out and to gossip in response. Or a financial setback that we have reveals an unhealthy trust in money. We didn't know that we had that, but we discovered that through pain. What about work pressures that reveal our willingness and our habits of binging behaviors? Or parenting stressors reveal our irritation, our anger. Pain makes us confront our sin. We have to ask the question, are we going to rid ourselves of the sin so we can run the race after Jesus? Or are we going to quit the race so that we can keep the bag of our sin. We either have a breakdown or we have a breakthrough. And this is intentional. This is actually part of the process of growing in Christ. 
our text mentions Esau. Our author, the pastor of this text, talks about how he warns us against um, becoming immoral or unholy like Esau, verse 16, who sold his birthright after a single meal. And that afterward, when he desired to inherit a blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. What's, what's the author talking about? Well, Esau was the grandson of Abraham. I mean, he was a child of the covenant. He was, he was in line to receive God's incredible blessing and to take that blessing to the nations, to the world. Um, one day Esau comes in from a hunting trip. He's tired. He's really hungry. And his brother Jacob is cooking some stew. And his brother Jacob, who's very strategic, says, hey, Esau, I would love to serve you some stew, but in exchange, I would like for you to sell me your birthright. <laughs> your birthright. E- Esau's birthright was his legal, it was like his uh, like legal proof that he was the firstborn in the line of the covenant. And so the birthright was sort of like this tangible sign of God's blessing that flows through Abraham down to Isaac, down to Esau. And Esau could have at that moment took a stand. He could have said, this birthright means too much to me for me to to sell it so that I can satisfy my cravings and satisfy my appetite. He could have confronted Jacob and said, hey, Jacob, look, listen, you and I are brothers in this covenant. Don't tempt me like this. This is not appropriate. I actually want my birthright. I actually own my birthright. I actually want to honor God by keeping this birthright. He didn't do that. He didn't take a stand. He made an excuse. And he said, actually, like, why not sell my birthright? What does my birthright mean to me? I'm really, really hungry. I'm really, really in pain. And so he sold his birthright and he got the stew. And then not only that, for the rest of his life, so then, the, you know, then Jacob also stole the blessing from Esau and the drama even unfolded. And so Esau lost his birthright first, then he lost his blessing. And then you know what he did is that he blamed Jacob his whole life. He, he stewed in resentment. He stewed. Things didn't turn out his way. Life didn't go how he thought it should go. And so he became an angry, resentful old man. Later, there was a reconciliation. But things were never the same for Esau because he curved in on cravings and then he curved in on conflict. And who among us, my friends, have not been there? Who among us has not been Esau at some point in our life, right? We sold the birthright of God's, bless, of God's blessing for something short-sighted. We were in pain, right? So instead of taking a stand, we made an excuse and we gave in and we gave into the darkness and we denied Christ and we blame. It's everyone else's fault. It's God's fault. Right. But you know what? Jesus Christ ran his race to rescue all the Esau's of the world. Because he, he knew that we would fall and he didn't want to leave us helpless. So when we've collapsed along the race. Whoa. Like that candle glass. When we have crashed, all we have to do, my friends, is to cry out, Jesus Christ, Savior, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And he will come find us. He will scoop us up and he will carry us. He will get us back into the race. That's how great his mercy is. That's how great his kindness is. 
and we'll actually have that opportunity. We'll have that second chance to run the race again. But here's the thing, my friends. The pain threshold is going to go up again the minute we start running again. And that's part of the process of grace. Grace isn't going to take that away. Grace isn't going to take pain away. It's not going to take temptation away. It's going to give us strength to face the temptation and to face it again. And instead of having a breakdown, to have a breakthrough. And we're going to have a choice between repentance and resistance. As some of you uh, have been spectators of the Chicago Marathon, some of you have run the Chicago Marathon, some of you are training for the Chicago Marathon, right? And uh, you know that around mile 20 to 22, what happens? You hit the wall. Energy drops. Exhaustion sets in. The excitement is no, you burn through all the adrenaline. Adrenaline's gone. And the race seems like it will never, ever finish. And at that point, it's all about who you fix your eyes upon. You could fix your eyes upon those who have given up. They've lost focus. They're dragging their feet. They're shuffling. You can, their shoulders are hunched. They're, they're defeated. And if you fix your eyes on them, that's exactly what you're going to do. You'll give up as well. But you could fix your eyes on those who have the shoulders back, who are keeping their pace, who've got consistent strides, who are, despite their exhaustion, continuing to press on one foot in front of the next. And they'll keep you going. And they're going to carry you through to the finish line. Someone once said this, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. Right? So running by faith is so often a matter of running by the faithful. So think about people in your life. Who are the people in your life who are running as close to Jesus as they can? They're running after Jesus as hard as they can. Are they enduring hard things with patience? Are they winning battles over sin? Are they showing joy instead of cynicism? Are they venturing on God to provide? Are they taking risks to love and serve? Are they growing in holiness and peace? If you've got people like that in your life, keep them in your sights. Those people are golden. Stick as close to them as you can. Ask them to pray for you in your own battles against sin. What about other people in your life? Do you have anyone in your life that's a little bit more like Esau? Making excuses, taking shortcuts, dropping out, losing heart, curving in on themselves. When the pain threshold hits a certain point, do they stop seeking God and do they instead curve in on cravings and conflict? Maybe you have a chance to encourage them. That would be great. Encourage them. But don't spend much time with them. Don't let them set the pace for your life. It's fine if you're setting a pace for them and they're following you. The stakes are too high, my friends. There's a reason that we never hear this. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. That's how it was supposed to be. That's how it could have been. But Esau dropped out because he didn't get what he wanted. Esau dropped out because he sold his birthright. We don't say the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau because Esau threw in the towel at the very moment he was called to step into grace. So my friends, Jesus the high priest is pleading with us and praying for us to not make the same mistake 
as Esau. He wants us to run the race well, and he's running next to us. He's not just the one who ran the race before us. He's still running the race with us as our great high priest, feeding us, encouraging us, strengthening our inner person so that we can cross the tape. A man is facing a cancer diagnosis in the prime of his life. He finds that though his body is weaker from the painful treatments, his prayer life is richer than ever and his compassion for others is deepening and he would never actually want to go back. A young woman is starting out in her career. She's got a coworker who's outwardly hostile to Christianity, openly hostile to Christianity. And so this, this young Christian is, is kind of set back on her heels from the constant barrage of questions that seem to come from a bad faith place. Yet um, her city group is praying for her as she goes into work. And she's actually finding that her confidence in Christ is growing from these conversations, that she's becoming a little bit more free to disappoint people who don't like Jesus and also to speak with greater grace and truth in response to her coworker. There's more peace and Holy Spirit in her life as a result. Or what about this hypothetical example? A local church is in need of a permanent worship space. They pray fervently for God to provide. And in the moment of greatest uncertainty, he answers their prayer by bringing over 500 migrants to live in the campus where they meet. So instead of despairing, they rise to the occasion with a carnival and a lunch. And even a few people step and step up and volunteer for perhaps an ESL ministry going forward. When we are in great pain, when the discomfort is at its highest, Jesus Christ makes us capable of great faith. The time came for the uh, U.S. Olympic gymnastics team to go up to the podium to receive their gold medal, but they refused because Carrie Strug was not with them. They would not receive their gold medal unless she was up on the podium. And so after Carrie Strug got her, um, her ankle in a cast, her coach scooped her up and actually carried her up to the Olympic podium. And, uh, and there, Carrie, along with all of her teammates, received, they dipped their head down and received their commendation, received the gold medal, and the national anthem played. A time will come, my friends, when the race that you and I are running will be over. And we will come to our deathbeds. We will be unable to run any longer. And at that time, if we have looked to Jesus in this life, the founder and perfecter of our faith, our great high priest, will come to us. He will scoop us up and he will carry us up to where he belongs, up to the throne of grace, where we today have mercy and grace to help in time of need, up to the Father where the Father reigns over all of heaven and earth, and there we will receive our great commendation as the cloud of witnesses cheers. But there are miles to go still, and our work is not yet done. And so, Emmanuel, while we have the opportunity, let us lay aside every weight and fix our eyes on Jesus Christ and run after him by faith and not by sight. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I invite you now to take a moment to offer to God your prayer as we consider running after him by faith. And Lord, we do pray that we would have the mercy and grace we need.
to run after you without falling, but we can only do it through your strength, through your power. We repent, Lord, of any ways uh, that we've made an excuse rather than running after you in the moment that we have. So we offer to you our lives, Lord, and we pray that we would be able to put one foot in front of the other today and every day until we meet you face to face. In Jesus' name, amen.